receiving incoming transmission. That's so embarrassing. Welcome back, Radical Christians. Welcome back, Radical Christians. This is Drew, and we're interviewing Derek Gilbert for his new book, Giants, Gods, and Dragons. And we're going to talk about the Four Horsemen. So thank you, and enjoy. Receiving incoming transmission. Welcome back, Derek. How are you doing today? Doing fine, doing fine. Seems like we just saw each other. Yeah, very short amount of time ago. <laughs> That's um, all right. So you and Sharon have brought us the next installment in what I like to consider the, um, the intelligence briefings for the spiritual war we're in. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank so, you. I'll take that as high praise. Thank you. And, and I'm not alone in the fact that I'm one of many people who are just waiting for this book to come out. Now, I remember when you first started talking about this book, you you referred to it as Hoofbeats. So how, how did this project start out? And this, this project, was, um, the project is Giants, Gods, and Dragons. Sorry. For, right, right. Beautiful reference. Um, well, it originally started out as a, uh, a book that Tom wanted Sharon to write by herself. She had written a book back in 2014, late 2014, just before we came out here to the Ozarks to partner with Tom and uh, Joe and Nita and the Horn family and Skywatch TV. Uh, she is a molecular biologist. And uh, Tom asked, and a longtime student of prophecy, so Tom asked if she could take those two areas of study and combine them into a single book, because that was the time when the, uh, the West African Ebola outbreak was at its peak. She had delivered a presentation the summer of 2014 when the uh, outbreak was going on, on, um, what, what did she call it? Uh, e well, Ebola and the Fourth Horseman of the Apocalypse. And that was, um, I, well, that might not have been the title of the, uh, the presentation, but she dealt with the prophetic implications of Ebola and not just, uh, you know, God said there would be pestilence in the last days, but um, looking at the, the rider on the pale horse, who's accompanied by, uh, Thanatos is his name, by the way, accompanied by Hades, who is another entity from the Greek pantheon, but um, he's given power to kill with, um, let, let me uh, look this up here in Revelation chapter 6 to make sure I get the correct English word, uh, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence, and of course Ebola is nothing if not pestilent, mm -hmm. and by wild beasts of the earth. Well, the word translated beasts is therion, which is a diminutive form, means, you know, a smaller, referring to a smaller version of the root theria, which means animal. So she's looking at, okay, the tiny beasts of Revelation 6, could those be defined as viruses? And she argued, yes. Um, this was at the, uh, the Prophecy Watchers Conference back in uh, Colorado Springs in 2014, and uh, people were sitting there taking notes with their jaws on the floor. Mm. And I told, you know, Tom had heard about it because he spoke at that conference as well. And he asked if Sharon would write a book on it. So she wrote a, 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 a thin book, a quick read. And, you know, surprisingly, you wouldn't figure somebody could write a book on Ebola and end times prophecy and have it be uplifting. But <laughs> she managed to pull that up. So fast forward to 2020, and we're in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, nowhere near as deadly as, um, uh, as the, uh, the, corona, well, the Ebola outbreak in terms of the uh, the case fatality rate. I mean, the uh, you get infected with Ebola, you basically you've got about 50-50 chance of survival. Wow. Whereas with the coronavirus outbreak, it, it depends on where you are and what kind of nutrition you, you have. Many areas of Africa where this virus hits, sadly, are badly malnourished. So the case fatality rate can be up as high as 75% sometimes. 
with this outbreak, depending on your age, I mean, for people under the age of 50, it's about 99.97% survivable or something like mm -hmm. that. It's it's uh, like it's it's like a bad case of the seasonal flu. Seasonal flu is like point. 0.1% fatal. So it's like 99.9% .9 chance you'll survive. Uh, I think for people under 50, it's like 99.7. I think I misplaced a decimal there. So it, it's worse than the seasonal flu, but nowhere near as bad as Ebola. Now the trade-off is that it's much more communicable because it doesn't have the same scare factor as Ebola. The idea of bleeding out tends to keep people you know, people will socially distance themselves voluntarily when you're facing something like that. Um, they found that with this outbreak, the, these non-pharmaceutical interventions like mask mandates and lockdowns just have not have not really done anything to stop the spread. But anyway, Tom asked Sharon if she would write a book about the uh, the rider on the pale horse in the context of the coronavirus, and she said, you know, uh, as we were talking about it one night, w this book should really be more evergreen because end times prophecy is not tied to just one specific outbreak. Let's see if we can expand this and bring in other topics that would make this book more relevant for more people for a longer period of time. Now, we are producing a weekly program for Skywatch TV called Unraveling Revelation. And we have been going through Revelation so slowly, I think 62 episodes, I think we've only made it up to Revelation, you know, seven. Mm -hmm. um, and keep sidetracking into, you know, like Zechariah and Daniel and Isaiah and so forth. We had gone through the four riders of the apocalypse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and there's actually five because when death rides out, Hades is with him. So, you know, unless Hades is riding, you know, with him on the horse, there's five horses. Anyway. Could be in a sidecar. Could be. Could be. <laughs> um, that's an interesting mental image. <laughs> Wearing a little leather cap with the goggles, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Sharon asked the question, which I thought was kind of like a forehead slap. Like, why hasn't anyone thought of this before? If Thanatos, which was a known entity in the Greek pantheon, death, and Hades, which is likewise a known entity in the Greek pantheon, why, why aren't the other three? Why do we always interpret, or traditionally, why have we always interpreted the other three writers as symbols representing conquest and war and famine? I mean, if they're naming death and Hades, who are two entities, why not the other three? It's like, oh. Okay, so we started looking into that and found that there are enough clues for the, to the identities of the first three riders of the apocalypse that we could make pretty good guesses anyway as to who they are. And so from that grew uh, essentially the core of the book, Giants, Gods, and Dragons. Um, the title of the book just came out of my presentation for the Skywatch TV Defender Conference this year, and which just argued, hey, look, uh, and that was inspired by a silly story that, that popped up over the summer. We're living in a uh, an age that's so politically correct that uh, players of the game Dungeons and Dragons, which because it delves into the occult and casting spells and magic and so forth, really don't recommend Christians play it. But mm -hmm. the players who were involved in the game got upset at the depiction of the orcs. Now, for those not familiar with the world of J.R.R. Tolkien, The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings, orcs are these monstrous... Um, demonic creatures that were essentially, if you read deeply enough into Tolkien's work, you'll see that they were created by taking elves and essentially torturing them and uh, and twisting them to things that are purely evil. They're warlike, they're cannibalistic, they're, 
violent, they're stupid. Uh, you just would not want them as neighbors. Well, the players in Dungeons and Dragons uh, assumed that the reason the orcs were always depicted as violent and evil is because their skin color is different from that of the elves who are always depicted as good and gentle and kindly and artistic and loving. So clearly, this is a racist statement that was being made by Tolkien, who after all is an old dead white guy, so he must have been racist. Like, <laughs> so after, you know, uh, the other forehead slap, like, uh, uh, I stopped and thought, you know, we can laugh at those people, but the problem for them is that uh, they are taking a work of fiction and they are behaving as though the characters in it are real. And so they were protesting for fair and equitable treatment for the orcs. But we Christians, according to repeated survey after survey, year after year, by the Barna Group and others, Pew Research Group, find that most American Christians who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ really don't believe what he said about the spirit realm. I mean, Jesus is God. We believe in a triune God. We believe the book is his word. And yet when he calls the gods of the pagans of the ancient world gods, when he describes Satan as a seven-headed red dragon, describes Leviathan as a dragon of the sea with multiple heads, and talks about the giants of the ancient world and how they currently have a special place in the underworld, and when you dig deeply enough into the Hebrew, you see that Ezekiel actually prophesied their presence on the battlefield in the final war, uh, the final battle of the war of Gog and Magog, which we identify as Armageddon, you realize the giants, the gods, the dragons, all of these characters that would fit into a Tolkien-like world are right there in the Bible, and God is the one who's telling us that these things are real. And yet we Christians are pretending that they're made up. So who is really the more foolish of the two? The Dungeons and Dragons players who are taking a fictional world and pretending it's real, or Christians who have the word of God and are pretending that it's fiction. So that was what inspired the uh, the title of the book. And there, then we went into uh, some of the other research we did for unraveling revelation into chaos or the chaos monster Leviathan. And uh, research that came out of our book Veneration about the, uh, the Nephilim, the Rephaim, uh, the demon spirits that Ezekiel was writing about in Ezekiel chapter 39. And uh, so out came giants, gods, and dragons. That's awesome. And, and that sort of thinking is, is, is why I believe people are so into fantasy. You know, there's a level of escapism, but also I, I think inside of us, you know, God puts eternity in our hearts. I think we know that there's more to, to, to what's around us than just this, this very de-supernaturalized, bland kind of existence along with like go the rat race, the nine to five, just doing the, the constant, you know, cares of this world. I think people know there's more and fantasy shows that there's a lot more. And, and that kind of thinking is what can fascinate people about the Bible. So, yeah. And we're hoping that, uh, you know, by pointing this out, we can, you know, get people as excited about the Bible as we have become <laughs> in our older years. <laughs> I think for sure it will. Now, when you talk about these writers, Okay, let, let's talk a little bit about when they they came onto the scene or come onto the scene, and then the the first writer conquest. It's traditionally been taught that the writers of the apocalypse emerge when the uh, the seals open and the, the seven sealed scroll is, is opened. 
And traditionally, we've been taught that the Seven Sealed Scroll has yet to be opened. We used to think that way, um, but we changed our minds about 15 years ago. We read a book by David W. Lowe, L-O-W-E, called Earthquake Resurrection. And in that book, uh, and in another uh, by Peter Goodgame, Red Moon Rising, uh, they make the same case, that the first five seals have been opened. And that would mean, of course, that the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse are already out and riding. Now, that may surprise some people who assume that, well, that, that just can't be. We can't have, you know, the riders of the apocalypse, that the apocalypse isn't going on around us right now. Well, here's why we say this. And again, credit where it's due, David and Peter uh, really changed our paradigm, shifted our paradigm on the end times prophecy. We see the one who opens the seals, the lamb who appears to be slain. But uh, when John appears in the throne room of God in Revelation 4, the lamb is not there. And in Revelation 5, the one who's seated on the throne, that's God himself, holds the scroll sealed with seven seals. And an angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, which we argue is uh, a reference to the Rephaim, we show in the book, and I showed in my book, uh, we showed in our book, Veneration, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 32, the chiefs of the Gibberim, the chiefs of the mighty ones, have a special place in Sheol. Uh, we argue that's a reference to the Rephaim in Revelation, but uh, no one is found who's worthy to open the seal. Now, if we know that the Lamb, Jesus, is worthy, why does no one know where he is? When could this have been when nobody knew where he was? It had to be in that transition period during his resurrection when he was on his way to heaven because we know from the epistles, the letters of the apostles in the New Testament, Paul and Peter, uh, we, we, the vision of Stephen, as Stephen was about to be stoned. This took place around the year 35, 36 AD, just before Paul or Saul became Paul. Uh, so three or four years after the resurrection, Stephen looks up and he sees the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father. So we know that by about the year 35 AD, which is about 65 years before John wrote Revelation, Jesus was already at the right hand of the Father. So if he's at the right hand of the Father, why is it that nobody on heaven or on earth or under the earth is worthy to open the seal. We believe what John has shown in Revelation 5 is essentially a flashback to that period just before Christ's arrival in heaven. Because then we see in Revelation 5, the lamb appears between the living creatures who based on their description are the cherubim or more accurately pronounced the cherubim. Um, and because he's between them, the throne guardians and the throne, God, well, Okay, he is the one who's worthy. He is the second power in heaven. He is the second of power of the Trinity, the Son. Then he takes the scroll and begins opening the seals. Now, what's we don't see it making a whole lot of sense for Jesus to arrive in heaven by about 35 AD, and according to John, apparently begins opening the scroll right then for us to be 2,000 years later, still waiting, you know, who can open the scroll, who can open the scroll? Well, the lamb is right there. He's been there for 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. So we believe that the writers began to write as soon as the scrolls were open. And uh, 
I think when you look at the course of human history, yes, there has always been famine, even in you know, the pre-Christian era. Uh, there's always been war. There has always been conquest. But I think that these, like Satan during his time on Earth, is limited like a dog on a chain. You can only go this far. It's not until uh, the restrainer is removed, as Paul writes, that things really disintegrate on the earth. And I believe that's when uh, things essentially, well, you know where they're going because they'll be in a handbasket. Um, <laughs> so the lamb, lamb opens the first seal and one of the four living creatures says with a voice like thunder, come. Now, there's some discussion as to whether it's come or come and see. Uh, the English Standard Version is the one we like. I, I, Sheridan and I actually disagree on this point. She thinks that the command is to John to come and see what's going to happen next. Uh, my take on it is that the, uh, the, the cherub or carov is saying to the first rider, come, now time to ride. Mm. Well, this is the rider on the white horse. The, the rider has a bow and a crown is given to him, came out conquering and to conquer. That's all we're told about him. But in that sentence are a number of clues. The word translated bow is toxon from which we get the word toxic. So it is. Uh, it refers to something that can be uh, a, a distance weapon that um, spreads what? Sickness, illness, disease, something like that. Mm -hmm. The crown, uh, There and there are some who throughout the ages have, have assumed that this rider on the white horse is uh, actually the Messiah. Because we see later in Revelation, he is depicted as a rider on a white horse. The clue that it's not Jesus, not the Messiah, is the type of crown. This is where our English language fails us. Uh, a lot of misperceptions, misconceptions we have been taught over the years, uh, I think we can put down to the way Greek, Arabic, and Hebrew is translated into English. The word in Greek is Stephanos. That is a crown of victory. It was often given to the uh, winners in the Olympic Games. The uh, crown of royalty is a diademos, a diadem. And interestingly, we see later in Revelation 12, Revelation 13, that the seven-headed red dragon wears diadems, crown of royalty, and the beast that emerges from the sea, the Antichrist, also has a crown of royalty, diadems. Uh, here, this, uh, and you would assume, of course, that, uh, yes, uh, Jesus, when he's depicted later in the, uh, in the book of Revelation, has many diadems. So. He's wearing the crown of royalty. This dude is wearing a crown of victory. Now, here are the clues. The, uh, the, the uh, Stephanos crown, according to Greek mythology, was created by the god Apollo. Apollo had fallen in love with a, a river nymph who rejected his advances. And so uh, in fleeing from Apollo, who apparently wasn't going to take no for an answer, um, found her father who was a river god and she prayed to him to uh, transform her into a tree or something to save him save her from uh, Apollo so he transformed her into the laurel tree which is the tree that the leaves that were used to make the uh, the Stephanos so Apollo is the one responsible for creating the Stephanos he said because he still loved her that he would always wear it uh, so that she would always be with him and she would always be you know evergreen uh, the Stephanos crown was adopted later by the Roman emperors, beginning around the time of Caesar Augustus and, uh, you know, continuing with Nero and, and onward. It became a symbol. Uh, it, it originally was just a symbol that was worn by Roman generals returning from a victorious uh, campaign. But it became a symbol of the Roman 
emperors. And this continued down to the time of uh, Constantine, who was ostensibly, allegedly, a Christian. He legalized the Christian faith, but uh, depicted himself on uh, a, a pillar, a, a, a statue erected on a pillar at Constantinople as Apollo. Hmm. Uh, Nero considered himself the equal Apollo at playing the lyre. So uh, this, this was something that was associated with the Roman emperor. Um, and the, uh, the attributes of Apollo as a god was that he was a plague god, a warrior, but a plague god, and he spread the plague with his bow and arrow. Uh, wow. Interestingly, the older incarnation or older versions of this deity, because the Greeks and the Romans simply got their pantheon, uh, kind of adopted it and then adapted it from older pantheons in uh, Canaan and in uh, Mesopotamia, he was known to the Canaanites as Reshef, and actually the Egyptians, some of the Egyptian pharaohs worshipped Reshef as well, uh, including the pharaoh of the uh, the Exodus, uh, Pharaoh Amenhotep II, which is really interesting because Apollo's and Reshef's other uh, association is with chariots. You know, Apollo was the one who hitched the chariots or hitched the horses to the chariot that pulled the sun grot across the sky. But in older times in Mesopotamia, Reshef and his Babylonian version, Nergal, were associated with the chariot because they were also the gatekeeper to the underworld, and the chariot was the vehicle that transported the dead to the underworld. So wow. this uh, pharaoh of the Exodus worships Reshef as his personal god, uh, the god of plagues and the protector of chariots and chariot warriors, and god Yahweh frees the Israelites by sending a bunch of plagues and then destroying the pharaoh's <laughs> chariots. So not a coincidence. <laughs> so the conquering part, we think, is this. Uh, this rider on the white horse, Apollo, Reshef, Nergal, was, was, I think, in this regard, Apollo was considered sort of the epitome of Greek and Roman youth. I mean, he was uh, uh, clean-shaven, he was muscular, athletic, um, uh, active, he was uh, a patron of the arts as well as a warrior. So he was everything that the perfect... Greek young man, Roman young man, would aspire to be. If you look around the United States today, and in fact, many um, of the nations in Western Europe, I mean, the Holy Roman Empire continued in name even after it collapsed in the 5th century in the West and the 15th century in the East, but continued in name into the relatively modern era. But if you look around the United States, today, look around Washington, D.C., how many of our buildings in Washington, D.C. Are, are inspired by the architecture of Greek and Roman temples? Well, most of them, actually. Mm -hmm. How many of our state capitals are topped with um, uh, pagan idols? I mean, here in Missouri, which is pretty conservative, you know, outside of St. Louis and Kansas City, uh, Missouri is about as conservative a state as you'll find in these United States. And yet this year, there was a minor controversy because the statue on top of the Missouri state capitol which is the, uh, was the grain goddess Ceres, had been taken down last December to be cleaned. It, it's been up there since about 1920-something. Uh, it needed to be cleaned and refurbished and restored. And um, our state senator, who, who uh, represents our district, Drew, uh, actually raised a fuss about it. It's like, why are we putting it back up there? Why are mm -hmm. we putting a pagan statue on top of our state capitol dome? Let's leave it down. And, of course, he was mocked by the press for being this, uh, you know, Jerkwater Hick from Backwoods Ozarks, he babble thumping, you know, probably snake handler. Like, 
But it's true all over the country. In fact, all over the Western world, we've got these pagan symbols, pagan imagery built into our government buildings. And we would argue that that coupled with the fact that, frankly, our, our civilization here in the West is founded as much on Greco-Roman philosophy and law as it is biblical morality, that you could argue that we are the conquest of Apollo and that first writer of the apocalypse. Wow, so the conquest has happened and will continue to happen, I assume. And we have the marks of it all over our government buildings. <laughs> Amen. In fact, so now, that's, that's a project I'd like to take on sometime, just travel around the country and just, you know, with, with cameras and just document all of the pagan imagery and statuary on our state capitol buildings. Yeah, that'd be eye-opening and probably depressing. <laughs> 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 so that's writer one. Now we have writer two. Now for this writer, I remember reading um, your work on him in Bad Moon Rising. And that, along with some work from Russ Dizdar, is actually the, the inspiration for the project I'm working on right now. Uh, well, thank so, you. I, I look forward to reading that. Sounds fascinating. Um, the second writer is probably pretty easy because it's the, uh, the writer on the red horse, and that represents war. Uh, the thing that surprised me a bit is in researching the, the writer on the red horse in, in John's day, which was... Uh, uh, where Greek was the, the language spoken by everyone, even the apostles. I mean, they probably, the apostles probably couldn't speak uh, Hebrew. I mean, if they spoke a Semitic language at all, it was probably Aramaic. Uh, but they certainly knew Greek. And so they knew what the Greeks around them believed. And the god of war, of course, was Ares, known as Mars to the Romans. What I didn't realize until I did a little more digging in it was that, the, uh, uh, that just like Apollo was Reshef to the Amorites who lived in Canaan and Babylon, or Nergal to the Babylonians, uh, Ares, Mars, had an older counterpart in the uh, the area that was occupied by the Israelites. That was the national god of Moab called Chemosh. And Chemosh is a very ancient deity. goes all the way back to uh, the middle of the third millennium BC. In fact, the ancient city of Carchemish in northern Syria was named for Chemosh. It means uh, market of Chemosh. The city gates in this ancient city of Ebla, which goes back to about 3000 BC, was named for Chemosh. So this is a very ancient deity, this, uh, this god of war. It's just as they uh, came into contact with the Greeks, which began much, much earlier than uh, most of us think. You know, most of us think Greek history begins around the time of uh, you know, the Trojan War, which is around the 13th century BC. But uh, in fact, there's uh, you know, Anakim, were mentioned in some Egyptian texts that date back to the time of Abraham. And uh, uh, there's good research to show that the, the word behind uh, the Anakim is not a Hebrew word that means long-necked. It's actually a Greek word that means uh, king or lord. So wow. like in the Trojan War, the, uh, the leader of the, the, um, the Mycenaean Greeks, Agamemnon, was the Anax, the king of all of the uh, lesser kings who followed him into battle against the, uh, the city of Troy. So the Anakim were essentially a, uh, a, a, Greek, uh, a, a Greek people, a warrior people, who were occupying the land when the Israelites came in. Uh, and they probably came into contact with this war god, Chemosh, through the Moabites, and uh, you know, Ares was then transported out to the Western Medi Mediterranean. What was really interesting, though, is that on the, um, the famous Moabite stone, which was found by Sir, uh, Sir Charles Warren, 
who's the same guy who found Warren's shaft, the water shaft that provided water uh, that Hezekiah had dug so that they could survive the siege of the Assyrians. He also found that stela um, inside the temple on the summit of Mount Hermon in 1869, the one that said, by the order of the Most High and Holy God, those who swore an oath proceed from here. Really, we ought to call that the Watcher's Stone because that's what yeah. he's talking about. Anyway, the Moabite Stone makes reference to that incident in the Old Testament where Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and the son of Ahab, Joash, the king of Israel, went to war against Moab and the Moabite king, Misha. And in the Bible, uh, we read about uh, Misha slaughtering his son, sacrificing his son on the wall of his uh, capital city, and uh, great anger breaking out against Israel. And uh, all the Israelites and Judahites uh, ran away. Yeah, it's kind of a puzzling story, biblically speaking. We won't get into the reasons, you know, why or what happened. The point is that the Moabite stone corroborates that war against Israel and Judah. Of course, it tells it a little differently. But the point of the story is that the national god of Moab, Chemosh, is equated on that stone with another god called Athtar. Uh, Athtar, interesting. It's, it basically, it's it's like a, a uh, uh, an integrated deity, Athtar Chemosh. Now, that's really weird because Athar was the male war god aspect of the female sex goddess Astarte. When you go back further in Mesopotamian history, though, you see that Ishtar of Babylon was both female and male. She could basically be one or the She was the first gender fluid entity on Earth. <laughs> Ishtar, or in her older name, uh, Inanna in ancient Sumer, there are hymns that praise her for this. She can change the right side to the left side, meaning she can turn men into women, and the left side to the right side. She changed the male into the female, the female to the male. Uh, th th that's a very old thing, by the way. When Moses came down the mountain and said, uh, okay, marriage will be you know, one man and one woman, that was progressive. <laughs> but she could, she could be the male war god aspect or the female sex goddess <laughs> aspect, depending on uh, her, her, her preference. And by the time of the judges in Israel, the Canaanites, the neighboring Canaanites, would, would worship uh, the planet Venus, which was what represented her in the heavens, um, as v Venus in, I, I forget it, one time, it, I think it was Venus in the evening represented uh, Astarte, the female, and in the morning, Venus represented Attar, the war god. And that somehow became identified with Chemosh, and as we go further then into history, into the Christian era, uh, Athtar continued to be worshipped by the Arabian tribes in Arabia. In fact, it was the only deity who was worshipped by all of the tribes of Arabia, as far as my re research can tell. Uh, each of the tribes had its own pantheon and different deities at the top of the pantheon, but the war god Athtar was worshipped by all of them in the time of Muhammad, around the uh, beginning of the 7th century AD. So. You know, a thousand years after, uh, more than a thousand years after the Moabite stone was written, almost 2,000 years, in fact, uh, Athtar, the war god, was still being worshipped in that part of the world and by the warlike Arabs who, once they coalesced into a super tribe under Muhammad, basically came out and conquered almost all of Christendom. So that's what we're looking at with uh, this, this god, Ares. And, and now I know it can be really complicated if you're saying, no, wait a minute, if... Uh, the sex goddess, if that wasn't uh, Astarte, wasn't she Aphrodite and Venus? Yes, that's true. How did she split into two aspects? 
I don't know. We're dealing with multi-dimensional entities here, and we're limited to three spatial spatial dimensions. So uh, don't try to figure it out too hard because your head will <laughs> explode. It doesn't make a whole And besides, they lie. We can't trust what they say. Exactly. The point is, though, that, that this warlike god, and by the way, as I argued in Bad Moon Rising, that Inanna, Ishtar, uh, who also was very violent and needlessly bloody, uh, just uh, enraged, with, with, you know, like the uh, war goddess of the Canaanites and that, uh, just in, incredibly warlike and brutal. Uh, I would argue that both of those spirits are involved in what drives the uh, uh, drives Islam and has since the days of Muhammad. And, and we're seeing it now playing out in Europe. Uh, four terror attacks in France in the last two months, and now one just as we are recording this here in, today, another one in Austria. So. Um, Jeez. Anyway, uh, I, we, we would argue that that entity has been out and writing since the first century as well. So I have two things to say about uh, the second writer before we move on. Number one, I'm offended that you assumed his gender. And number two, <laughs> <laughs> number two, what can you say about the weapon that war carries? Uh, let's see, this writer was, was given a great sword and you know that's a good question sharon has done some research on that uh what is the greek there and of course my uh logos bible software is okay it's the makara i was thinking it was a ramphea but that's that's a different entity um the the fact that it's the great sword though which is certainly part and parcel of islam i think has something to do with its uh, tendency to separate people's heads from their shoulders you know even today i mean one of the attacks in france just within the last few weeks was a school teacher who showed cartoons of the prophet muhammad uh, as a lesson on free speech and wow. uh yeah and he was attacked by an 18 year old kid who had no connection to any of the students in his class but was beheaded and then in the uh, southern city of nice uh one of the women who was attacked in um last week in a in a uh a terror event that left three people dead. Her head was practically, uh, uh, you know, her, her neck practically severed as well. So uh, I, I think that speaks to the nature of those wielding the sword. Um, mm -hmm. People interested in the history of Islam and its history of conflict with the West, there's a book I highly recommend by Raymond Ibrahim, I-B-R-A-H-I-M, Raymond Ibrahim, called Sword and Scimitar. And uh, he, he documents it from original sources. So, uh, you know, this is not us being prejudiced against another religion because they don't follow Jesus Christ. This is simply looking at the history of the last 1400 years and the fact that bloodshed uh, is, is a, a, by their, in their own words, a, a key element of their, of their faith, those who take the teachings of Muhammad seriously. So that covers writer number two. Now for writer number three, famine. What, what do we do with that? This one was a little more interesting. This one took a little more digging and research. This is the writer on the black horse. The writer had a pair of scales in its hand. Now first we need to understand that the word translated scales conceals again what we're dealing with here. It does sort of convey, uh, you know, the, the, the set of scales, uh, economic activity. You know, in, old, in the old days, you had to weigh out so much of this against so much of that. 
uh, or you would use weights to, okay, I want a pound of whatever, you'd have, have a way to uh, measure what you're, you're, you're getting from the, from the merchant. But the word translated scales is the Greek word uh, zugos, and that everywhere else that word is used in the New Testament, it's translated as yoke, like the kind of thing you would put around a team of oxen who are pulling your cart. So for some reason, here it's translated scales, but everywhere else it's a yoke. So I think it's more than just famine, it's economic slavery that's in view here. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. In John's day, a denarius was about uh, a full day's wages for a day laborer, which would mean if you're working just enough to buy a quart of uh, wheat, uh, three quarts of barley, uh, which is essentially enough to keep you one person alive for a day. What they're saying here is that when times get this bad, you will basically be on a treadmill. You'll work a day so that you can eat a day, but you've got nothing for tomorrow, much less nothing for your family, and you better not plan on taking any vacations or days off because you're not getting paid for those days. That's what's being described here. As we started looking into the entities of the ancient world that would have been known to John that had this type of responsibility, who was it in the ancient world that dealt with this kind of economic um, injustice, this, this kind of uh, uh, economic uh, slavery? And we first of all noticed that in the Greek and Roman world, the god Hermes, Mercury to the Romans, was the god of merchants. In fact, the word behind the name Mercury is the same word behind uh, merchandise and mercantile. And uh, uh, so he, he was clearly named well for the role that he had. He's also the god of thieves, which may not be coincidental. But when you look at his older, his older um, incarnation, his older aspect in ancient Babylon was called Nabu. And as Nabu, he was also the god of scribes. In ancient Babylon, the scribe was a key uh, position in society because most people were illiterate. And so when you needed to have something done that required a legal document, you had to go to the scribe. When the priest received a revelation from the gods, a prophecy, and it had to be written down. They had to go to a scribe. So a scribe was sort of a combination um, lawyer, uh, a, a messaging service, um, and uh, di diplomat in some cases, because they were the ones who kept the records of what was said, what was brought in. They were also the accountants. So it was like you know, lawyer, accountant, uh, you know, title office. Uh, all rolled into one. Uh, and so a, a very important position. In fact, Nabu gained in popularity in the Mesopotamian world. I've been re doing a little more reading about him this week. Uh, he began as the, the son of Marduk, the chief god of Babylon. But by the time of the, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the time of Nebuchadnezzar, he had actually surpassed Marduk in popularity to the point where he was sort of like the co-regent with Marduk, the chief god of Babylon. After Babylon fell, Babylon was conquered in 539 BC by the Persians. The cult of Marduk sort of disappeared. 
But Nabu continued on um, and again was brought into the Greek and the Roman pantheon. The, the Greeks and the Romans really don't have a cognate, a, uh, an equivalent deity for Marduk. But Nabu just became Hermes and then Mercury. What's really interesting is that as part of his duties, Nabu uh, and the scribes who then were, uh, for whom he was their patron god, the scribes of the temples and whatnot, they were the ones who kept the ledgers. So they kept track of who was donating, who was tithing, who was paying their taxes, and also who, you know, essentially they were also the bankers of the ancient world because they were the ones who kept track of all of this. So the tax collector, the banker, the lawyer, the uh, the scribe for the gods, that was that was Nabu, all in one. And so we think he's the best candidate, this Nabu Hermes Mercury character. And as we were finishing up our, our research on this, we stumbled onto something which is sort of like, so amazing you can't make this up. Not that we necessarily attach any prophetic significance to it, but this is one of those things that's sort of like a cosmic joke where the spirit realm is kind of nudging and winking. Uh, about uh, 10 years ago, a little more than 10 years ago, right after the uh, the big real estate collapse in 2008, 2009, uh, MasterCard introduced a new fee that all merchants merchants would have to pay. It was like a two cent fee for each charge that has to be paid directly to MasterCard. Uh, and other cards have similar fees uh, called by different names. Um, and they could have called this anything. They could have called it a service charge or you know, whatever. But instead, decided to give it the name the Network Access Brand Usage Fee. The acronym is NABU. So every time you swipe a MasterCard, you're paying NABU. Wow. It's like, okay, somebody at MasterCard had a big laugh over that one. But <laughs> it's appropriate because if we're talking about economic slavery here, what is it in our modern world except debt? Yeah, and exactly. In the book, I go into some depth on this, which might seem weird for a book on end times prophecy to be talking about student loans and credit cards, but it seems really appropriate because this is how many people get themselves into a financial situation where if the economy collapses, which we are dealing with right now in COVID-19, a lot of small businesses have not been able to pay rent since April or May. Uh, landlords are then next in this line of dominoes that are going to fall when they can't make their tax payments because suddenly all these revenue producing properties have filled with tenants that can't make payments um, people who are renting apartments payments people who own houses can't pay the monthly mortgage suddenly all of this this house of cards built on debt begins to collapse and people find that they really don't own anything because they've allowed themselves to be placed in the yoke the zugos of debt through student loans that are promised to us, they, giving student loans to kids who frankly shouldn't be going to college, giving credit cards to people who frankly shouldn't qualify for any kind of credit, giving mortgages to people who should not qualify for mortgage loans because the bankers get us on the hook for a 30-year mortgage, student loans here in the United States, you cannot discharge those through bankruptcy, except in very, very rare circumstances, you have to jump through a lot of hoops. So if you do declare bankruptcy to clear your debts, which is what bankruptcy is for, you can get rid of your credit card debts, your home can be sold off at foreclosure, your car can be repossessed, but the student loan will sit there and just keep adding interest charges onto the principal until you're back out of, and then you've got an even bigger loan that you have to repay. 
That, I argue, is the yoke, the zugos of the rider on the black horse. And that is what the uh, World Economic Forum, I think, is banking on with this great reset that they've been talking about. We touch on that just a little bit in the book as well. Uh, this is something that uh, they just floated they, back in the spring, and they're going to propose its, its plan in full in January of 2021. Uh, essentially, they want to fundamentally transform society, economics, social interactions, um, the, the, the form of government. And they actually are tweeting out as though it's a, a, a feature and not a bug. <laughs> I mean, I had to check to make sure this wasn't a parody. When I saw this today, I talked about this on Skywatch TV today. A sm picture of, of a smiling young man with a quote from the founder of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab. Boehm, you will own nothing and you'll be happy. Like, <laughs> they want to eliminate the concept of private property. I mean, okay, I can see maybe you can't get a house, but you gotta, you know, own an apartment. But what you're saying, I can't, I'm not gonna own a TV, I'm not gonna own a car, I'm not gonna own my clothing, I'm not gonna own a, a computer. I'm gonna own nothing and I'll be happy. And you'll like who? it. And yeah, <laughs> except they, they left off the last part of that, which is dot, 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 or else. Yeah. Again, it's, it's mind boggling that they're putting this out there right now as we're going through this because, yeah, this, again, this book started as an analysis of how coronavirus outbreak might fit into the context of the rider on the pale horse. And as we began looking at it, you know, conquest, yeah, you can say that uh, culturally, philosophically, even religiously, to some extent, the, the, the spirit of Apollo lives on in Western civilization. The red horse since the 7th century. And when you look at how the, the Muslim nations of the world became Muslim and conquered almost all of Christendom, in fact, the reason the West is called the West is because that's all that was left of the Christian nations after Islam conquered the rest. I mean, in 1682, Austria was under attack. The city of Vienna was almost conquered twice, once in the 16th century and again in, 16, I think it was 1682, when the great Polish king Jan Sobieski and his flying hussars, you know, arrived just in the nick of time to save the city. If it had fallen, and now think about this, English colonists had settled Massachusetts and Virginia and all up and down the eastern seaboard by the late 17th century. So we're talking 60 years after the first settlers, pilgrims, landed at Plymouth Rock, Muslims were at the gates of Vienna, Austria. So we should not be surprised we're seeing that kind of bloodshed continuing to this day uh, around the world. And of course, economic slavery, especially in the last 40 years, since about 1980, when Alan Greenspan started uh, you know, artificially lowering interest rates and inflating bubbles. We saw real estate bubbles in, in the, uh, the 90s, and uh, now we've got a student loan bubble. I think there's like $2 trillion in student loan debt here in the United States, and kids not able to find a job now during the lockdowns, but those student loans, okay, we'll put it in abeyance for you, but they're still adding interest charges. Uh, they're building the yokes for the next generation. So that's, that's what we think the writers are. And of course, Thanatos, Death, and Hades, uh, those are fairly self-explanatory, except that Sharon found something really interesting, which we talked about in the context of uh, the interviews for Giants, Gods, and Dragons. And I think that's worth bringing up. 
is that the uh, the word followed um, when he opened the fourth seal and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I look and behold a pale horse. And of course that's chloros, so it means like a sickly green. Uh, its rider's name was Death Thanatos and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now again, we talked about the wild beast, the therion, the little beast, the viruses perhaps. Um, interestingly, sword, famine, and pestilence are three aspects of God's judgment that we see in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is prophesying the coming Babylonians who will punish the rebellious nation of Judah with sword, famine, and pestilence. But um, Hades followed Anatos, and the Greek word followed doesn't just convey the sense that, you know, Thanatos was riding ahead of Hades. It was that he followed him like a uh, like a squire following a knight. It's wow. like, you know, Sharon described Sharon described it. It's like Hades is the fanboy of death. But when you think about it, you know, if Hades is an entity as well as a place that that holds the souls of the departed, you know, without death, Hades is nothing. So there's an interesting relationship there. And it's interesting Hades and death are among the last enemies of God destroyed at the end of the book of Revelation. Wow, and, and when, when you see that God uses the first three writers um, as judgments, then it's like the last one reserved is death and Hades. Like, you know, death, the ultimate end all for life, and then eternal punishment and eternal prison, basically. Yeah. And that's, that this, this really opens up the four horsemen. It takes them from being just these random concepts that you kind of think you can get a grasp on to, wow, these these could be tied in with actual beings and they're in, and you bring, you bring their names, you expose them. So I'll be praying for you because I know you're going to get it <laughs> for what you've done. <laughs> well, you know, it's really, really interesting because in the uh, the section on, on the first writer, uh, going back to Apollo, one of the things that I that I was not aware of. Yeah, I, I knew that Apollo was the god of uh, oracles in the Greek world. What I didn't realize was that as Christianity spread after it was legalized in the, uh, well, I, yeah, Christianity spread after the resurrection, was that the oracles of Apollo gradually fell silent one by one. And uh, I want to find the, uh, the, the last in, inscription here that was recorded, the last inscription attributed to one of Apollo's oracles because it was uh, kind of kind of sad almost. I almost feel sorry for the guy. Um, as the worship of Jesus spread across the Mediterranean world, the Pythia at Delphi, and I'm quoting from our book now, went quiet after the second century AD. And in the third century, the other major oracles at Didyma and Claris in Western Asia Minor ceased to prophesy as well, but not before a couple of oracles that reflected the growing tension between the old culture dominated by the pagan gods and the emerging culture founded on the worship of Jesus Christ. It is well known that the largest and most intense persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire was rolled out in the early 4th century AD under the Emperor Diocletian, not in the 1st century, 4th century under Diocletian. During the first 15 years of his rule, which began in AD 284, the emperor barred Christians from the army and surrounded himself with men hostile to the faith. But that wasn't enough for Diocletian's junior emperor, Galerius, who pushed Diocletian to expand the punishments for Christians to all who refused to return to the old pagan ways. What is less well known is that a pair of Apollo's oracles convinced the emperor to go along. 
the worst persecution of Christians was inspired by the oracles of Apollo. In AD 299, Galerius supposedly heard, reportedly heard, an oracle from the temple of Apollo at Daphne near Antioch. That's in uh, southwestern, southeastern Turkey. Uh, the oracle complained that the righteous men on earth were a bar to his speaking the truth. This prompted Diocletian's purge of Christians from the army. Then in the winter of 302, Diocletian, apparently the urging of Galerius, sent a soothsayer to the oracle at Didyma. The early Christian author Lactantius wrote that the answer was such as might be expected from an enemy of the divine religion. So whatever that enemy, whatever that answer was, prompted a 10-year period of intense persecution. Christians were stripped of property, churches were destroyed, uh, scriptures were burned, church leaders were imprisoned. imprisoned. Uh, but finally, Diocletian retired in the year 311. Galerius decided enough was enough. We can't kill off enough of these Christians to put a stop to it. And uh, Galerius uh, actually became very, very ill and then finally agreed to an edict of tolerance for Christians, apparently trying to make peace with uh, this God of the Christians, hoping that he would be healed. Didn't help. He still died a very painful death. Um, but interestingly, the final known message from one of the oracles of Apollo came through the uh, oracle at the, uh, the city of Claris in the late second or early third century. Um, I should say one of the last known messages preserved on a wall at an ancient Greek city called, uh, I can't even pronounce it, Onoanda, I think. It's in southwestern Turkey, but this, uh, this oracle reads, self-produced, untaught, without a mother, unshaken, a name not even to be comprised in word, dwelling in fire. This God and we, his angels, are a slight portion of God. Now, Lactantius, the Christian author, noted that this oracle, speaking about a God without a name, without parentage, without mother or father, could not be Jupiter, the king of the Roman pantheon, because we knew that his father was Saturn, uh, we knew he had a mother as well. Only Yahweh, the God of the Bible, could claim to be self-produced without a mother and uh, unshaken. And uh, an oracle inspired by the God Apollo was compelled to admit this is God and we, his angels, are a slight portion of God. So I, I just found that fascinating, that this is not something I had ever heard before in any of the apologetic stuff that I've ever read, that as Christianity spread to the Greek and Roman world in the first four centuries, first three centuries after the resurrection, the oracles were producing these messages from the gods to the pagans, one by one, lost their power to speak. Wow. Just from the influence of Christ, they lost their power for divination. Wow. That's crazy. That shows that we can really make a difference. Amen. Well, thank you for coming on, Derek. This is awesome. This is very exciting material. And when does the book officially come out? It should be up by the end of the month, the end of November. Um, we were hoping to have it in time for uh, the first of November, but apparently there's an industry-wide paper shortage among the printing industry. And so uh, the book has been delayed by that. This happened last year at this time too. I'm not sure what it is that's causing it, but uh, uh, the uh, turnaround time on the books is about double what it normally is. So it should be around Thanksgiving time that it's out. 
Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on. It's always a pleasure to have you. An honor to talk to you, brother. Receiving incoming transmission. Well, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Next time we talk with Derek, we'll be speaking about his fiction works, The God Conspiracy and Iron Dragons. And, Bree, do you have anything to say? And my wife's going to go live with Derek and Sharon. See you guys next week or the week after. Depends on how busy I am.